This episode is in partnership with Moody's Analytics. Moody's on Climate Solutions deliver transparent and robust data, analytics and insights designed to integrate into your existing business workflows. The foundation of our value is data and our approach to financial quantification of risk. Navigate climate risk with confidence, trusted data, financial insight, better decisions. Hello and welcome to this Moody's Analytics podcast. Known unknowns, we're putting climate scenarios into practice in a TCFD world. So my name is Christian Doherty and today we're looking at how climate scenarios are developing to meet the evolving needs of corporates and investors. Joining me today are three eminent speakers. We've got Laura Tadrowski, who's a director in Moody's Insurance Advisory Services team. She's joined by Alistair Thompson, who's also a director of research at Moody's Analytics. And finally, rounding things out, we have Leah Worrell, who is, who is deputy head of sustainable investment at in Insight at Izio. So perhaps we could kick off with a sort of a basic sort of scene setting question. Alistair, can you give us a bit of an insight into what goes into the current climate scenarios and how it how important is it that um, your clients gain a better understanding of the process and the content? Yeah, thanks, Christian. Um, I think it definitely makes sense to start with some context, maybe some some history. So the climate scenarios that are used by the financial sector um, actually build on quite a long history of scenario analysis uh, by the scientific community, um, which has informed things like the assessment reports from the IPCC for example. So these are developed into actually quite sophisticated models um, linking climate, energy systems and and land use um, and macroeconomics over time. And these are calibrated by quite large teams of scientists. At the same time, um, we have organisations like the IEA, um, who have done quite detailed modelling and and projection of the energy system and its links to the macroeconomy. So what groups like the NGFS, the Network for Greening the Financial System, um, have done is to take all of that work and that history of modelling and work with a number of different academic research groups to tailor these scenarios um, for use by the financial sector. Um, And these scenarios are, are built up of a number of different layers. So starting with assumptions around the broad macroeconomic trajectory, so what are known as the shared socioeconomic pathways. Um, These define sort of things like the degree of um, competition or cooperation between different countries, um, the sort of trend, productivity growth, um, demographics, factors like that. Then we layer on top sort of what the assumed climate policy is going to be which is sort of the key differentiator um, in something like the NGFS framework. Um, uh, So that's things like whether the policy response is going to be immediate or delayed, whether it's coordinated or divergent, um, and whether it's aiming at something like a one and a half degree scenario or or two degrees and, and, and so on. Then we run a number of different integrated assessment models, that's these detailed energy system models, um, to optimize the path to reach those targets. Um, And here we can get there in in very different ways, depending on on the assumptions that you make um, in things like the energy system modeling. So um, how much electric vehicles there will be versus hydrogen versus um, ICE and how quickly that will change and what the energy mix will be and whether it's going to favor 
biomass or, or nuclear, um, things like that. Then once we know the path for emissions, we can convert that to temperatures um, through another climate model. Um, and then we layer on our assumptions around you know, what the kind of long-term physical damages will be. And, and again, we can make different assumptions there, whether we think it's going to be more or less extreme, um, depending on kind of what, what your view is there. And then finally, we sort of layer on the financial economics. So what, what we focus on um, and think about kind of some of the different costs um, of, of physical damages, of energy prices, of investment and so on, um, and how those are going to impact on, on things like discount rates, um, on, on cost of capital, um, on returns for different asset classes. So the key point here really is that there are various critical leverage points um, in this sort of modeling cascade, um, which impact on the severity of the final result. Um, and this layered approach means we can, you know, to first order at least, sort of vary each of these individually. Um, and there's so many layers of uncertainty, um, you know, different unknowns here um, and assumptions that we have to set. Um, I think it's really important that users of these scenarios, you know, have, have an understanding of that um, and where you can play with these and where we're having to make assumptions. Um, and, and don't just treat this as sort of a, a black box or here is a sort of single definitive answer of this is this is what net zero looks like um, or, or this is what a particular scenario looks like because actually it's really important that there are lots of different ways to get there um, and understanding that range is, is really important. Absolutely. Okay. So, Leah, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's obviously lots of work going on in this area. Um, uh, and as Alice said today, we're talking about known unknowns and unknowns, un unknown unknowns. Um, from your perspective, I mean, what are the limitations of the current risk um, models? I mean, what do they fail to capture? Um, very good question. So, um, I guess it's important for investors to understand um, that there are limitations to the climate modeling um, that we are using as an industry. And these are common to the industry as a whole. Um, Alistair's just taken us through the sort of building blocks of what a, a climate model would, would typically um, entail. And, and it's relatively complex between the sort of transition, understanding the physical damage, understanding the macroeconomics, and then layering on the financials. Um, so, you know, ultimately, these models necessarily need to be simplified for easy investor rollout. And, and this is slightly at odds with what the sort of scientific community are doing, which is extremely complex modeling. And it can take, you know, several weeks um, to run simulations. Um, one of the key areas that this has impacted on um, our understanding is on in the case of sort of physical damages. Um, you know, there are many limitations to simplification, but this is one that the industry has focused on a lot this year. And it, essentially what we're doing is we're focusing a lot of the time on medium or average outcomes from these models. And that's really from a simplicity perspective and taking away key takeaways. Um, but what this can do from the sort of physical damages perspective is ignore some of that tail risk or some of the potential sort of more catastrophic changes that could occur if we don't 
curb climate change. Um, in particular, a key focus has been on climate tipping points, uh, which is essentially where elements of the climate system may shift from one state into a completely different state. Um, taking one example would be permafrost melting. So when permafrost melts, it can release um, semi-permanently stored carbon and methane into the atmosphere, accelerating emissions, warming the planet further, causing further permafrost melt uh, and temperatures beyond which um, permafrost can naturally reoccur as you get into this self-perpetuating cycle. Um, why, Why is this so harmful to our understanding? Well, if we're significantly underestimating physical risks, what we're showing investors in terms of what the impacts on their portfolio could be may be significantly underestimated. And that's just something that investors should know, because I think a lot of the models at the moment that we're looking at, so taking an example, um, under a sort of three plus, four plus degree scenario, predict a loss in GDP by the end of the century of around 20%. Um, some estimates are even much lower than 20%. Some say that actually such scenarios could be positive on the global economy. Um, when integrating tipping points, that picture changes significantly. So in, in that case, we're talking at sort of 50 to 60% loss in GDP by the end of the century. We're essentially talking about worst case scenarios of climate catastrophe with unpresent, uh, unprecedented physical changes for our planet and uh, pushing our societies and economies to the brink, really. Um, that That's just sort of one of the examples on, on the physical damages side. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a sobering thought. And, and it's interesting to see, uh, Laura, what's happening here from a customer uh, viewpoint. I mean, what are the typical kind of conversations that you're having there uh, uh, around these scenarios? As is probably clear now, I guess, from, from what Leah said and what Alistair has said, there is a lot of complexity within the modelling. Um, and, you know, most of us who are working in the financial services, you know, have, have backgrounds as quants and have backgrounds as actuaries and are used to pricing typical financial instruments, thinking about market risk, thinking about life risk, underwriting risk, anything else we're used to thinking about, but we're not used to thinking about climate risk. Um, and we're probably, I don't want to speak for everyone, also not used to looking at the type of models that are being used um, for, for modelling that climate risk. So initially with our customers, a really big focus is on knowledge transfer and on trying to get them to understand the type of models that are used. The, the places where uncertainty remains, um, because it could be very easy just to get a set of climate scenarios, you know, out of the box and to not understand the the level and the complexity of the assumptions on which those scenarios are conditional. And without that understanding alongside your scenario set, you're not really in the best position to understand how to use them, what questions to ask, you know, how to modify them if there's a if there's a different type of exposure you should be looking at. So for us, a really, really, really big part of working with clients on this is helping them just to understand all of that modeling. Um, and I suppose that within my role in the advisory services team, we really sit between um the climate experts, the research team, the people who are able to go into all that modelling and, and understand it all in very fine detail, and the practitioners in the field. 
Um, and, you know, as we know from, I guess, finance in general, there isn't always a, a great connection between the modelling and the theory and then what people are actually done and how the, what people are doing and how they need to be able to apply that theory um, to, to the real world. So most of my job is, again, that, that knowledge transfer and also helping them get to that application stage. Um, this doesn't just mean us telling them everything. It usually involves the client asking lots and lots of questions um, and making sure that they understand all of the assumptions that are there and that they communicate with us as well where they think those assumptions should be different. So it's really a back and forth, the knowledge transfer. And what are the levels of understanding like there when it comes to those conversations? Are you, are, are, are you surprised at the level of understanding and knowledge among your clients there or, 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 or is it quite a steep learning curve? There's a very wide range. So on the one hand, we can work with clients who have um, never thought about climate risk before, um, are seeing these models for the first time, and they want to understand something maybe just at the, the first rung of the ladder level. They want to understand what the minimum they need to know is to begin the processes that they're starting. And right at the other end, we can work with clients who have you know, whole teams of climate actuaries. They know the models inside out. They have, you know, PhDs and degrees in these subjects and they want to go to a lot of detail. Um, so we have the full range. There isn't really anything that's standard, but I would say that, you know, climate's new to all of us, you know, with the exception of the climate actuaries who've, who've really specialised in it. So that that learning process is something that we've even been going through ourselves over the last year or two. Um, and it's something that we're trying to be well equipped to support any range of clients through, um, regardless the level of technical knowledge that they have. Absolutely. Okay. If I can come back to you, Leah, one of the issues here, one of the um, uh, you touched on some of those scenarios, but and, and, and of course, one of the other sort of associated elements there is going to be transition risk um, and and what that looks like and what sort of challenges that presents um, to the economy generally and to individual businesses. Um, in terms of the scenario models that are being developed, do, do you think they're delivering the necessary insight? Yeah. Um- Probably not at this stage, <laughs> being the short answer. Um, but then the long answer is, um, you know, essentially we are doing the best we, that we can at the moment. Um, you know, go back to that governance and resourcing piece around what is possible. Um, yeah, I think we briefly touched on on physical risk, but on the transition risk side, there are equally a lot of issues. Um, you know, many of the models that we're working with have significant reliance on um carbon dioxide removal for example later this century which essentially is you know under the most stringent decarbonization scenarios for example to achieve 1.5 degrees this um, century which is in line with the most ambitious target of the Paris Agreement and they will rely significantly on approaches and technologies such as um, BECS or, or bioenergy uh, such as biomass plants with CCS on top, carbon capture and storage to take uh, emissions back out the atmosphere or, or DAX, which is direct air capture um, and storage of emissions or, you know, otherwise some nature based approaches such as restoring forests or wetlands or, or soils. Um, these are the sort of the some of the remit or gambit of approaches and technologies under that carbon dioxide removal bracket. But um, there are significant limitations because um, some of these scenarios envisage very significant rollout of these technologies, which, to be frank, at the scale required is 
very much a question mark at this point in time. Um, many of the technologies required remain unproven at this stage. Uh, for example, um, you know, um, Alistair previously quoted the work of the International Energy Agency, the IEA sites. There are currently 130 direct air capture facilities in operation globally, and these are absorbing 0.01 million tonnes of carbon dioxide a year. I want to put that in contrast to actually the scale of annual global emissions at the moment. They said that last year that was 37 billion tonnes of CO2 was released last year versus the 0.01 million tonnes that are being sequestered. So you've got 130 facilities that are absorbing a very negligible fraction of global emissions. And we've been developing DAC since the 1990s. We're still very much in sort of R&D demonstration phases. You know, it, it there is a big question mark on whether that... that um, area of the market can deliver on on what some of these climate scenarios are hoping they can um you know focusing on the more natural routes so you know agriculture and forestry and land use changes um we know that we're living in a inc- increasingly sort of finite world in terms of space you know lots of competing uses for land from food to infrastructure development energy and biomass production and then starting to build into that requirements for mass restoration of land to forests or wetlands for carbon offsetting um, becomes a big question mark. And many question that this is unrealistic, um, given the conflicting uses of land and the sheer volume of land required Um or that are being baked into some of these scenarios that there won't simply won't be enough land um, to deliver this. And then once, you know, once that is delivered, there may be issues with saturation. So for example, you know, a forest will absorb lots of emissions up to a point, and at that point it becomes saturated and the further potential of that land is lost. But you still need to hold that carbon sort of in semi-permanence for extended long periods of time for it to continue to have a climate impact. Um, So I think ultimately the key takeaway is that many of these assumptions may be unrealistic and we can't continue to kick the can down the road in terms of decarbonisation. I think the key point being we need to significantly decarbonise today rather than, you know, continuing under business as usual and assuming that future technologies or approaches will at some point kick in and be delivered at scale and and sort of save the planet as you were. Um, So we're walking into the unknown a bit in that area and there's been a lot of critique in that. So I think some of the scenarios are trying to sort of scale back that reliance on carbon dioxide removal. But I'd say that's probably the key one in terms of transition risks. Yeah. Alistair, I mean, from your perspective then, I mean, we've got um, in the next couple of years, obviously, the introduction of TCFD, and that's going to come in in the way in which that's going to impact the way uh, businesses address this, the way they report on all of this sort of stuff. I mean, uh, how important is it from your perspective for clients to take a proactive approach on this? I mean, you know, we're talking about kicking the can down the road. I mean, what's your kind of message there? Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's important for for clients to take a proactive approach to this. You know, I think, um, you know, despite you know, some pushback in, in, in places that we've seen, um, you know, we've also seen, as Leah said, um, particularly in the UK, a lot of discussion that, that we're not treating this seriously enough. And I think um, it's only going to become more important um, 
particularly to regulators um, over the next few years. Um, uh, so you know, it's going to be something that clients have to do. Um, so getting getting ahead of that and making sure you understand it, um, it, it is really important. Um, and, and not just from the, the regulatory point of view, but also if you're going to put in all of that that work and that analysis to understand these scenarios, um, making sure that you get more benefit out of that um, is going to be really important. Um, but I think if you do just treat this as a kind of tick box exercise and do sort of the, the very minimum and don't have a good understanding um, of what's actually going on, you know, of the assumptions that are being made and, and the sensitivities to those, then um, I think it's going to be quite difficult to explain the results and, and to justify them you know, to the regulator, to your, to your board, to your investors. Um, but also, if you do start trying to use these for, for business planning, you could, you know, really draw, draw the wrong conclusions from them. Um, so, I mean, as, uh, as Leah says, there's, there's a lot of things we're not necessarily capturing very well um, yet. Um, but also, there's a lot um, that you can do with the scenarios we do have to try to understand some of that uncertainty. So, for example, um, each of the NGFS scenarios have been run with three different underlying models. Um, and these all make quite different assumptions around how we you know, perform that transition. Um, so I said earlier, you know, things like the role for hydrogen or the role for nuclear, um, they also have different views around things like um, land use change and, and carbon dioxide removal. So how much, how much biomass there will be, um, how much of that will will be captured um, and kind of stored. Um, so if you look across these different models, you can start to see um, a range of different views. Um, you know, we might think they're all a bit optimistic um, compared to the historical record, but they certainly do have quite different views of how how far that could be extended. So you can start to see how the sensitivity changes when you do change that assumption. Um, we can also do things like look across you know, a, a bigger range of scenarios. Um, the IEA have their own scenarios, um, uh, as do groups like the, the UNPRI, producer forecast policy scenario, which they just updated this autumn. Um, and those are built in a slightly different way than the NGFS scenarios, um, maybe more kind of bottom up, looking at the individual technologies and trying to project what's realistic um, for those to grow over over the next kind of 30, 40 years. Um, so that gives you another view. So looking across these different scenarios, looking across some of the scenarios used by the IPCC, um, uh, really understanding that range of possible outcomes um, I think gives you a better understanding of you know how realistic some of these things are, um, and also how material they're going to be for you. And in terms of um, your perspective, there, Laura, I'm I'm interested to have a look at it or have a think about what's happening over the next couple of years and 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 what you expect to see. I know it's a very very broad question, but in terms of the way in which clients are kind of engaging with this and understanding with this, do you expecting them to see? Are you expecting to see greater engagement? Are you expecting to see perhaps a little bit more emphasis on some of the opportunities that might be opening up? I mean, what's your? It's a crystal ball exercise, I suppose. But I mean, what's your take on 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 what's in store over the next couple of years, particularly with the background of TCFD coming in? I think my view here is that momentum is growing. So I don't think that this is going to be something that goes away or 
pressures diminish. I think it's going to be something that pressures will only increase to have some knowledge or perform some of these kind of stresses. Um, I think that right now the industry as a whole are all in a steep early part of the learning curve. Um, and it's probably advantageous to to join in now while everyone's learning um, and start at least trying to get a handle on, on some of the basics and some of the modelling that's done. Um, as we've probably touched on a few times now, the modelling is complex. And as we're recognising issues or deficiencies in some aspects of the modelling, the complexity might only increase. You know, if you start recognising you're not modelling something well, you come back in and think about how do we make this a bit better? There'll be more modelling components to it. Um, and I think as well that it's also something that some of our clients are doing in a, a, a phased approach. So, you know, if this isn't going away, if it's only going to get more complex, learning a lot of complexity up front and doing everything right from the beginning is a hard thing to do. But starting the ball rolling now with, you know, doing something, learning from that and then incrementally increasing what you're doing as you get more and more familiar with what you're working with. Um, and as this all evolves in the background as the regulatory landscape changes um, I can only see that as a positive thing um, I guess from so much of what we said it's not necessarily an easy thing to, to get a grasp of um, and it's something that's definitely better started um, than deferred further on down the road from our side as well we're, we're seeing this growing um, we see it as a very active area of growth. We have more and more and more clients to us, coming to us on a monthly basis asking for information on how they can perform these kind of stresses in a variety of contexts and how they can get alignment across their business with the way that different teams are all thinking about incorporating these stresses. Um, so, yeah, for us, it's it's growing and it's not going away. Would you echo that, Leah? Is that is, uh, are you expecting to see? I mean, obviously, you know, it's going to be a busy time over the next couple of years, particularly with TCFD coming in. You know, what's your how do you see your next kind of 18 months, two years sort of panning out? Yeah, I think um, Laura and Alistair have like really perfectly touched on how complex climate change modelling is alone. But I think what the industry is also now grappling with is things coming down the line around um, nature related modelling as well. Um, so, you know, looking at developments in the nature space, um, UK investors are primarily looking at the task force for nature related disclosures, which is the nature nature related equivalent of the TCFD. Um, this is currently voluntary, but we know that in the government's um, green agenda that they have explicitly stated that the framework would be used as the basis to consider developments in the regulatory environment, which may or may not, may not impact on our clients um, down the road. Um, I think the main ask that we're getting from those clients really is that any nature-related requirements are embedded and integrated alongside climate change requirements so that we're not you know, doubling up on efforts to produce, you know, two different reports. Um, and in the same way, we need to look at modelling in the same way. I, you know, if, if we're looking at models that can holistically capture, um, you know, environmental risks and opportunities for investors as opposed to sort of doubling up those exercises. Um, the problem being at the moment, I'd, I'd say nature is, is much more nascent than climate change modelling. Um, there are a couple of key developments that we can touch on in this space. Um, in particular, the, the TNFD are explicitly looking at interrelated climate and nature scenarios. And some are synergistic in that they're saying, you know, global climate and nature goals can be synergistically uh, delivered. Um, and they, you know, there are co-benefits there, but they will also look at scenarios where actually there may be trade-offs and you know, a siloed focus on climate change and decarbonisation 
for example, could actually come at the expense of nature-related outcomes. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. There's also the um, international body of global scientists leading our understanding on sort of global na- nature degradation, um, which is the um, IPBES or the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, quite a mouthful um but they've been focusing on the interrelationship of nature and social aspects actually just thinking on actually you know different scenarios in which you know maybe we can have a symbiotic relationship with nature where we value nature and and that's integrated into the way that we operate as a society and economy but they're also looking at other scenarios where you know we we see nature just as a utility a use or a benefit for people and societies and actually we might sort of then start to sort of um pillage a little more um into what we need so i think what's quite interesting is these bodies are looking already at the interrelationships with climate change social factors um and you know problems will remain um around that and the complexity of nature modeling um you know and these will share a lot of commonalities with climate change for example you know tipping points are those adequately monitored or also localization is a very unique point in nature you know a localized river versus a coastal ecosystem versus a forest these are very different localized habitats so how do you properly model that in a sort of global top-down model you know whereas climate change models are focusing on global emissions that sort of translates relatively well into a global approach but you know is the same true for these localized nature habitats so a lot to think about but I guess just watch the space because I think you know frustratingly however complex it is now it might actually just become more complex with time as we start to grapple with some of the wider sustainability systemic issues beyond climate change as well absolutely well as you say lots to think about and we've just sort of scratched the surface here on this uh, um on, on, on this podcast but um uh it's a good start so I suppose to wrap up it just remains for me to um to thank my three panellists who've given us such insight, Alistair Thompson, Leah Worrell and Laura Tadrowski. And and also to thank you for listening. Thank you very much for sparing us the time. There will be further podcasts to come down the line. But for the time being, thank you very much and goodbye. This episode is in partnership with Moody's Analytics. Moody's on Climate Solutions Deliver transparent and robust data, analytics and insights designed to integrate into your existing business workflows. The foundation of our value is data and our approach to financial quantification of risk. Navigate climate risk with confidence, trusted data, financial insight, better decisions.